Imagine your friend invites you to a party. You arrive and there's lots of people, decorations, food and drink. There's enough for everyone. When you're hosted by someone that generous, you don't have to worry about your needs. You can just enjoy yourself and focus on the people around you. Yeah, that's what a good host wants for her guests. And this is the picture of the world that we find in the Bible. Creation is an expression of God's generous love. He's the host and humans are his guests in a world of opportunity and abundance. And we're called to keep the party going, to spread his goodness. This is a beautiful picture, but it's not the way people experience the world. Rather, we find a world of scarcity and struggle, not abundance. And Jesus grew up in that kind of world. Under military occupation, people losing their land or families to debt and poverty. And yet, he would say things like this. Look at the birds. They don't store up food for themselves, yet they have enough. Or consider the wildflowers. They're beautiful and abundant, and they don't stress about their existence. And you all should live that way, too. But surely Jesus knew that things don't always work out. I mean, sometimes there really isn't enough. And Jesus did experience poverty firsthand, but he viewed the world through the story of the Hebrew scriptures, which claimed that our scarcity problem isn't caused by a lack of resources. Rather, the problem is our mindset that God can't be trusted. Maybe God's holding out on me. Maybe there isn't enough, and maybe I need to take matters into my own hands. And once we're deceived into that mindset of scarcity, we can justify the impulse to take care of me and mine before anyone else. And that leads to envy and anger, violence, and a world where it seems like there's not enough. The party's over. It's turned into a battleground. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us who are gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I, I do promise everything I said to the kids does apply to stewardship in some way. We'll get there. Um, and, and just so that you all know, I'm looking at my sheet here, which has my scriptures on it, and my notes, which has my scriptures on it, and I'm realizing I sent them in in the wrong order. So you may have to do some digging back there to find the, the scriptures that I'm actually reading because you've got them messed up. But this is a great chance for you all to prove how good of a Christian you really are. Uh, did you bring your Bible to church? Oh, hey, there we go. So if you want to, you could you know, look them up in the Bibles in the few backs. But, um, or you could just listen really closely, which, you know, I know I'm kind of scary apparently, so that may be. Um, but we're going to be in, in the Gospels this morning. We're going to th- read passages out of all four Gospels that, that are Jesus referring in one way or another to not just generosity, but specifically to God's generosity and to what it means to be a good steward as, as a follower of Jesus. And so we're starting in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. Now, how fast can you find it? It's like a Bible drill. Granted, you all know this one probably. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. And if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this is very much like the standard stewardship sermon gospel passage, right? In fact, they tell us when they ordain us, if we don't use this one, our pay gets docked, okay? So we have to put it in there. Um, But there's a reason it's such a commonly used passage. It's a good one. It makes a good point. Where your treasure is, there's your heart. To put it another way, I can tell you what you value most in life by looking at your bank statement. I mean, you set aside the necessities, right, the mortgage or the rent, the utilities, the car payment, the groceries, like the things you have to have to function in the world. And what's the rest of your money being spent on? Now, obviously, this doesn't mean never buy anything fun, right? Don't go out to dinner. Just stay home, be miserable, and give all your money to the church. That's not the message. You're allowed to enjoy yourself, and you're allowed to treat yourself. It, it, it doesn't become a problem until it, that becomes so important to you that you would choose treating yourself over being generous. And I'm not just talking about giving to the church, although that's certainly included in it, right? I mean, if your friend needed money to pay for a necessity, would you hesitate to give them that money because you wanted to spend it on something unnecessary for yourself? And, And notice, I didn't ask whether or not you would end up giving them the money. I asked, would you hesitate? Would there be a pause? And it goes beyond just our personal relationships, right? I mean, it, this has to do with how we approach the entire world. And I know I'm going to get myself in a lot of trouble here, so just bear with me. Because um, I'm about to talk about hot-button issues, which is my favorite thing to do. You're all going to get mad at me, and it's going to be great. <laughs> when you vote, what kinds of economic issues are your biggest concern? Are you more concerned about whether or not your taxes will go up or whether or not the children living in poverty will have food to eat? So like I said, I know I can get myself in a lot of trouble. And, and believe me, I am not a fan of higher taxes. And, and if you didn't know this, by the way, we pastors have to actually like make the tax payments ourselves. So when I say I pay my taxes, I mean I literally sit down and make the payment. So I'm annoyed by them just as much as everyone else. Don't like higher taxes. But this is something we all had to think about because there is a clear connection between the morals we claim to uphold as Christians and the economics we vote for. No matter how much we don't want to delve into that subject material. So here's a good example. I'm going to guess most people in this room, not all of you, but most of you would probably consider yourselves pro-life. Most of you would. You know what the best way to prevent abortions is? It's not a ban. We know for a fact that bans do not reduce the number of abortions, and we know this because there were more abortions in the year before Roe v. Wade was decided, when they were illegal in more than half the country, than they were in 2019, when it was not only legal in every state, but when we were living under the most radically pro-abortion legal regime in the entire world. 
So we know bans do not reduce the number of abortions. You know what it does? It's gonna make some of you really angry. Subsidized healthcare. The most reliable way to reduce the number of abortions is to subsidize healthcare and childcare. Making it so that pregnant women have access to either very cheap or free healthcare, pediatric care, and childcare is, is the most reliable way to reduce the number of abortions. That's not my opinion, it's borne out in fact in other places in the world. But this goes directly against the economic ideals that most Christians in this country tend to support. Which might indicate that maybe our hearts are not in the right place because our treasure is not in the right place. Because the first objection that people would have to any kind of subsidized health care is my taxes will go up. Right? Most people will say that before they express concern about the ability of a government bureaucracy to provide health care and child care, right? I mean, that's a valid concern. And, and trust me, I, I am well aware that it's more complicated than that, and your concerns are more complicated than that. The issue is deeper than that. And I'm not telling you how to vote. All I'm saying is, we as Christians have to actually think about these things in that way. We have to seriously evaluate where our treasure lies. And sometimes we can be surprised by the answers to those questions. And sometimes it's going to go against the grain of the way we have thought for our entire life. And sometimes it's going to challenge some of our political ideals. And so all too often, Christians are unwilling to give serious thought to it. But we can't afford to live that way. Because where our treasure lies, there our heart lies also. And if our heart is not with Jesus, we've got a problem. This is like the quietest you guys have been in a really long time. Like I said, I know I'm dealing with sensitive subjects here, but, but that's the point. To get you to actually really think it through. Even if it's just a hypothetical, to really think it through. What's my objection to this? Is it purely because my taxes would go up? And if that's my only objection, what would Jesus say about that? We have to think about those things. We have to. Because I can guarantee you Jesus thinks about those things. We're going to skip ahead into Matthew 23, verse 23. <coughs> Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. And this is just a good reminder. In, in the midst of talking about stewardship and generosity and how that goes out beyond the walls of the church, that this is not about following rules. It's not about meeting an obligation. One of the core problems that the Pharisees and, and indeed the broader Jewish community in Jesus' time had 
was this, this fixation on the letter of the law to the exclusion of its spirit. Remember what we read in Deuteronomy, that they're supposed to bring their tithe to Jerusalem all at the same time and throw a massive party and celebrate all the good things that God has done. They're supposed to use their tithe to make sure that nobody in their community went without food or clothing or shelter. It wasn't about following the rules. It was about God's love, God's provision, and the joy that comes from knowing God. It was a means of being instruments of God's love and provision in the world. That was the point. That's why God made them tithe, not because they had to meet a rule, not because the temple needed to look pretty, but because God wanted to make sure that everyone was provided for. This people were his hands and feet in the world. That was their job. And so the, the scribes and the Pharisees are, are tithing these expensive herbs and spices, not even the standard like grain that most people would have been tithing. They give a tenth of their status symbols. It's all for show with them. It's not about being an instrument of God's love. It's about making sure that everybody sees that not only are they scrupulously following the law to the letter, but they are giving God only the very best they have to offer. And the best that they have to offer is way better than the best you've got to offer. And boy, you better remember that. And in doing so, they've forgotten why they're supposed to be doing it in the first place. They're giving has become a source of pride for them. They've poisoned their offering. Now luckily, for most of us, that doesn't seem to be an actual issue. I don't know many people in this church who, who brag about how much they give. In fact, I don't know anybody in this church who brags about how much they give. But the danger is there, the temptation is there, but more than that, the temptation to just do it to meet a rule, to, to fulfill an obligation, and then go no further, is also there. It's not about meeting the rules. It's about being the hands and feet of God in his world. So now we're going to skip ahead into Mark chapter 12 starting in verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. Which is, it sounds like it's supposed to be like a really backhanded compliment, right? <laughs> we know you don't care what anyone thinks of you. Just look at your clothes. I mean, that's the subtext. But truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. So they come to Jesus to, to 
test him on what was one of the most controversial topics of his day. People didn't like taxes back then any more than they like them now. And the Pharisees and the Herodians come together, which is, the, 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 these are not groups of people who would naturally be allies, okay? This, this, is, this is like Tea Party Republicans and far-left Democrats coming together with a common enemy. It does not happen. And they're going to test him. Should we pay taxes or not? This is natural controversy for the Jewish people, right? They pay a tax to the temple, and they don't use the Roman coins to pay a tax for, to the temple. They use their own coins. When it talks about the money changers in the temple, that's because people would bring the Roman coins to the temple, swap them out for Jewish coins, and give the Jewish coins to the temple because they didn't want to defile the temple with the pagans' currency. And so there is a hot debate amongst the Jewish people of whether they should pay taxes or not, knowing, of course, that if they stop paying taxes, it's going to be a bloodbath because the Romans are going to get their money one way or another. This is a really massive political issue. And his answer is really simple. Whose face is on the coin? Caesar's image is on the coin. And, and the implied question is, where is God's image? Caesar's image is on the money, but God's image is in the people. So give the money to Caesar. God's concerned with the people. Caesar can have all the coins he wants. God's treasure is his people. God's values just don't line up with the world's values. Jesus invests in people. He never had money other than what people gave him to support his ministry, but he was unfailingly and extravagantly generous. Even if it wasn't with money, then simply with himself. Think of all the stories where he's, he's walking along the road, clearly like on a, on a journey from point A to point B, and, and some random person just stops him to ask them for help, right? He stops every time. None of us do that. You know how annoying it is when you're a preacher and you're getting ready to preach on Sunday morning and someone wants to talk to you? You're all laughing because you do it all the time. Jesus has so much more patience than me, doesn't he? Because he stops for everyone. And it's not just perfunctory either, right? He stops and he sits with them and he talks to them and he heals them and he prays with them. And when he leaves, they know that they are loved and that they are better off than they were five minutes ago. He takes the time every time. There are multiple stories in the Gospels that talk about how he's preaching to these enormous crowds and there's so many people coming to him asking for healing and prayer that he's exhausted and his disciples are constantly going, Jesus, come get some rest. And he has to say, no, I've got to help these people. And then when it's all done, when everyone who has needs has had them met, then he goes off by himself to go rest and recover. But all the time, he is pouring himself out constantly. He is unfailingly generous, even if all he has to offer is himself. And now we start to get at the root of God's generosity. Because in reality, God may never be as generous with money as you or I would like him to be, right? Maybe you've not had that experience, I don't know. But what he will never withhold from us 
It's himself. And the more of him we have in our lives, the more we begin to see what a precious, incredible, and priceless gift he truly is. And that brings us into Luke's gospel in chapter 4. In verse 18. So this is just when he's in the synagogue and he's going to read the scroll of Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This is a messianic prophecy from Isaiah. And Isaiah said the people will know the Messiah had arrived when God proclaimed good news to the poor, liberty to the oppressed, restored sight to the blind, and proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor. That's a reference to the year of Jubilee, the year when by law all outstanding debts are canceled, all slaves are to be freed. Which, by the way, as far as we can tell, they never actually followed that law. The sign of the arrival of Jesus is supposed to be this incredible, liberating freedom. And there's a problem. Because Jesus didn't cancel anyone's debts. He didn't set free any slaves. So either Jesus is lying or there's a deeper meaning that we have to grasp. We have established that Jesus doesn't value money in the same ways that we do. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And Jesus' treasure is us. His people are his treasure. We are what he values most. And so when he commands us to be generous, it's not about money, it's about people. When he talks about good news for the poor and freeing the, the enslaved, it's something much deeper and longer lasting than just canceling debts. It's about forging a connection between God and his people that transcends our earthly problems and creating in us a community, a body that surrounds each of his children in love and generosity so that we can collectively solve those problems. In other words, the church is how Jesus intends to set the captive free. Our generosity within the church, generosity with our money, yes, but also with our time and with ourselves, is Jesus' answer to our problems. And folks, history is full of examples of churches doing exactly that. You may not be aware, but hospitals, our idea. We invented those because at one point Christians said, you know, it would be good if sick people had a place to go where they could be treated. And when they were run in that way, they were not charging people for treatment. Same thing with universities. That was our idea. In fact, most of the, the most well-known and prestigious universities in the world started out as institutions of the church, Oxford, Harvard, Yale, all originally explicitly Christian institutions. In fact, John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, was both a student and later a professor at Oxford until they kicked him out for being too religious. True story. We came up with all those ideas. Now look, we have since kind of abandoned them, right? We've, we've, let, we've let them be run by secular interests. 
And aren't two of the biggest complaints people have about this world the way that the healthcare system and the public education system are being run? Look what happens when we, when we collectively abandon our generosity. Schools and hospitals were originally expressions of the generosity of God through his church. We did that. And then we just kind of stopped doing it and let other people come in and, and take them over. And when it comes to freeing the slave, we did that too. Not just the abolition movement, but the civil rights movement of the 60s. Both were driven by men and women of God who were convinced that God was not okay with the state of affairs. You see, when we, when we understand what generosity is really about, when, when we understand what God's generosity in our lives is really about, and when we respond to it the way we are called to respond to it, we change the world. We literally save lives. We lift people out of poverty, not by giving them handouts, but by teaching them how to lift themselves out of poverty. That was the original idea behind universities. We literally free the captives. We've moved away from those things. We've kind of become content to either let them run themselves or let them be taken over by other interests. Even now, hospitals that have Methodist in the name are run pretty much like any other hospital in the world. Finally, Jesus says this in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life. That's what Jesus wants for us. And to be clear, he's not talking about what happens after we die. I mean, that's another part of it, but, but he came that we might have abundant life starting here and now. And abundant life begins with generosity, because it is in generosity that we break the power that money has over us, the power it has to instill fear in us, to manipulate us. When we practice generosity, we free ourselves to live abundantly in Jesus. Because the reality is we tend to think that abundant life can only come from hanging on to everything we've got. Most of us, on some level, even if it's subconscious, associate abundant life with financial well-being. And most of the time, we don't even realize we're doing it. Right, but, I mean, isn't that why we have retirement accounts? So that we are as well off as possible during our golden years so that we can have an abundant life when we're done working? And I, I mean, I have one. It's not a, this is not a finger-pointing sermon, right? right? Earlier I read the passage in Matthew where he talks about you can't serve God and money. Older translations will say you can't serve God and mammon. And the reason they say that is that mammon was the god of money. People literally worshipped money. And in so many ways, we still do. But it's more subtle now. We don't realize what we're doing. But the generosity of Jesus was about so much more than money. 
It's not like he had much to give in the first place, but he was still more generous than any of us. And in fact, one of the reasons we are supposed to be generous to an extravagant degree is because that is exactly how we recognize what abundant life truly is and how to truly find our treasure in Jesus. C.S. Lewis said, I don't believe one can settle on how much we ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. I love that quote, right? The only safe rule is to give more than you can spare. In other words, maybe don't sit down and figure out how much you can afford to give it, and don't get hung up on the 10% rule. Maybe instead you ought to be thinking about how much you're comfortable giving and then go a step beyond that. Venture into uncomfortable territory like you're lowering yourself over the side of a climbing wall. See, it all ties together. That's great. And remember, we're, we're not just talking about money. We're not just talking about the church. We're talking about the kingdom, which extends far beyond these walls. And, and we're talking about money, yes, but also about our time and our energy, our love, our attention, everything we have. You think about the things that we've done in the past, creating hospitals and university that didn't require just money, that required time, devotion, that required everything. You think about the people who labored for years in the 19th century to end the practice of slavery. That didn't just require money, that required their time their energy, their devotion, and their willingness to risk their lives. And see, we do that because we know that Jesus gave everything. Literally everything he had. He held nothing of himself back. Look, if you think that going to the cross and then to the grave did not require him to step beyond his comfort zone, you are insane. There is a reason the Gospels record the story of him sweating blood in the garden the night before. But you see, so often, it's there, right outside our comfort zone, that God meets us. We never learn, we never learn to trust in God if we don't actually have to if we don't put ourselves in situations where trusting in God is the only way to get through. If we stay safe, if we stay comfortable, we'll never get there. So many stories in Scripture involve God leading someone right up to the edge of a cliff and then asking them to jump. Not just to slowly lower themselves over the edge, but to take a flying leap of faith. It starts with Abraham in the Old Testament. Go, leave your city, and go to the place I'm going to tell you to go to. Nothing in there about how he'll know when he's found the place, how long it will take, or even if it will be a better place than the one he's in now. Just get up and go. And he does. Think about Noah. Hey, Noah, build a big boat, fill it with a bunch of animals, and you'll be okay. Would you do that? 
Yes. Time after time after time, the, the great heroes of the faith, they're not heroes of the faith because they were always good and always righteous and always did the right thing. They were heroes because when in the moment came for them to leap off the cliff and trust in God, they did. That's where they met him. Abraham didn't meet God at home. He met God in the wilderness. Noah met God when the flood happened. Paul met God as he was on the road to kill a bunch of Christians and got blinded and then had to trust his life to the people he was trying to persecute. We tend to forget that part. But the instruction to him from God was, you're going to go hang out with these Christians and they're going to take care of you. That's where we meet him. See, that's what generosity is. It isn't just about making sure we can pay the bills here. All that stuff is important, but it's only a piece of the puzzle. Generosity is about stepping into the unknown, putting yourself in a place where you're going to have to rely on God. Because it's not just about money. It may well be about your time, your skills, your presence, your witness, all the things that if you joined this church, you took a vow to support the church by giving. All of them. They all count. We can be generous in all those things. And somehow, some way, God is calling you to take a step into the unknown. And if you do, I promise you, he will meet you there. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.